And uh, that was a little bit overwhelming in a good way to realize <laughs> there's a lot of need around here. Um, so I hope, I hope that you'll, if you're going to, if you're going to be a part of the church here, we want you to be an active part. We want you to have a, a, a task, a role that you play. And uh, we, we don't want anybody just being a consumer. Uh, we want everybody to be involved. So lots of opportunities. If, if one thing freaks you out, maybe there's something else in there that doesn't freak you out. Um, you know, I can't think of anything scarier than watching over the nursery. Um, scariest environment that I can possibly imagine. Um, but for some people, that's going to be right up your alley, you know. Uh, it was funny, we were downstairs, nursery time was, was uh, about to kick off, and uh, we have uh, some folks that have, were dropping their, their child off, and very good friends of mine, and, uh, and the comment was made, this, this is our first kid, you know, we're a little hesitant, and I'm like, about the third or fourth when you're handing them off to people in the parking lot you don't even know you know like, hey we take this kid like like uh when they you know we we just had two week christmas break right finally went back to school there's a some of us don't homeschool on purpose okay like that's an intentional decision <clears throat> and so school starts back on thursday which was an exciting time And two and a half hours after those little boogers got dropped off, I get a phone call. There's going to be weather. There's always going to be weather, you know? There's always going to be weather. Just keep them there. It's safe, shelter in place. Put them on that cheese wagon. Get them on that bus about 3 o'clock and everybody will be good. Right, so, um, but there's one of the things that we're really committed to here is, is our children's ministry and developing and growing uh, from, from nursery through um, early child development in our youth program, youth ministry, put a lot of time, money, and effort into that. And, man, I, w I would just challenge you to, to plug in. Don't be freaked out. You know, it, working with students or working with children doesn't mean that you're going to have to stand up front and teach. There's so many things. We have people that can do that, that are called to do. We want people to just serve, and there's such a clear biblical teaching on this. So pray about where you might plug in where you might. Um, serve one other thing before we dive into this there, when I was preparing um, to preach this week I was thinking man I don't know how many of y'all at this point in the Genesis story are just feeling the weight of like sin and brokenness and boy you don't get far into the scriptures and you just feel the weight of the depravity of of, of humanity and it can be overwhelming it, it's almost like wave after wave just kind of crashing you know and then I mean, we're at the flood just a couple months into this study. And, and, and what the flood represents in terms of like whole-scale destruction, it can be overwhelming. But, man, we were singing that song right before the, the last song we sung. And we're, we are saying in redundance, I know my God is love. I know my God is love. And I just wonder if... Noah on the ark was, was, was having to say that. I know my God is love. I know the winds and the waves are smashing against that ark. There's judgment that's being poured out, but I know that my God is love. And I think oftentimes in the church, we've, we've lost, we, we, it's hard to merge these two ideas that God's wrath is in harmony with redemption and restoration. 
And we're going to see that tonight, that wrath gives way to redemption and restoration. So while God is purging and he's bringing destruction and he's bringing justice and he's judging evil and he's judging sin and he's putting to death that to which he's the one who has authored life, Paul will say to the Romans, does that which is shaped of the clay taste, say to the potter, why did you make me thus? We get to these difficult texts where we're going, man, what do I do with this? God's wiping things out. God's the author of life, and God is just. And we have to remind ourselves that we know our God is love. He's love. But love and grace and mercy have a backbone and are harmonized with justice. And so we got to remember that. So we come to Genesis chapter 8. I want you to keep one thing at the forefront of your mind tonight and throughout the rest of this study and always, and I want to always make sure we come back to this, is that at Red Oak, we stand firmly and believe so strongly in the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. You'll hear a lot of uh, cliched terminology. We're gospel-centered or um, we're, we're Bible-centered or we're Christ-centered, and we'll use that word centered a lot of times. And that's good, and we are those things, but we are driven by a sufficiency in the Word of God. I was talking with a pastor this week who's wrestling with, uh, he's, not a, he's not a vocational pastor, he's an elder at his church, and he said, man, I'm struggling at this church where I don't know, we had this conversation, he said, I don't know that the sufficiency of Scripture is something that is really clung to. And at Red Oak, you need to, you, I want you to know, if you're a member here, you should know this, but we need to be reminded of it. And if you're a guest visiting, then I would just put this in front of you. We are not going to chase social issues. We're not going to try to push and flow with cultural tides. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, and we will hold that line. There's no way you can keep up with the changing current in, in society and culture anyway. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. So when you go through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the way we do, and you get through a long stretch where it's like, oh my gosh, this is just heavy, man. This dude killed his brother, and this guy, you know, killed two dudes, and then now there's judgment, and it, and it can become overwhelming. Let's remember that the Word of God is sufficient, and the story it's telling is not just a story of wrath, but it's a story of redemption and restoration. Um, I remember as a kid um, being left alone a couple times, um, one was after baseball practice, uh, and I remember I was probably in the fourth grade, got left after baseball practice. You know, one, one car in the family, and I don't remember the details, but I remember I got left, so I started walking home, and uh, it was a long walk, probably, probably seven or eight miles. I'm in fourth grade. I'm walking down the road, and I remember, I can still remember, it's so funny, this big old long car comes driving by, and these really rough-looking guys are in that car, and one of them hangs out the window and yells at me, and I don't remember what he yelled, but I thought, I'm going to get abducted, and, you know, I've seen movies about this. They had after-school special about some girl getting kidnapped on the way home from school, you know. It's me right here. I'm milk carton bound, you know. And, and, uh, and then I remembered a little truth that my Uncle Mike used to tell me. Brody, don't worry. If anybody ever kidnaps you, that won't last long, I promise. 
<laughs> he said, you just be you and they'll, they'll return you, okay? And so when I remember walking home and I remember it was starting to get dark and I'm thinking, oh man, this is kind of scary, you know? And I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you felt like you'd been left alone by someone, um, but we're at the point in the story where these guys have been on the ark and it's just drifting. I, I mean, I... I, my mind was blown a couple weeks ago when Joseph brought out the point that there was no rudder or sailing device, that God was steering this thing. And it's just drifting. And we're going to see something in the story tonight that I think shakes me up a little bit. And it is the silence of God. Because there's this point where God speaks to Noah, and it's the first time that we hear God speak to Noah in over a year. Over a year. Man, we came through 2020, and we, we, we struggled with two things in 2020. Loneliness and boredom. Loneliness and boredom, right? Let me tell you when I knew I was at my melting point. When we went to a local mountain bike trail, and it was closed. I, I'm, I can't get over this. 14,000 square miles or whatever in Western North Carolina Forest Service, whatever it is. Come on, man, just let me ride my bike around, you know, like, like, but that, but remember going through that quarantine season and loneliness and boredom with two, just put yourself, let's put ourselves just floating on that boat and God's not talking. Now, here's what we have. We have the scripture. So God is always speaking to us. Like every single day, the Word of God is, is God speaking to me. It's the, the Word of God speaks. It's living. It's active. And God's speaking to me through His Word. But imagine these guys who are just waiting on the next word from God. Maybe tonight you're a person who feels alone and forgotten. If you are, Genesis 8 is a story that will encourage you. The beauty is in the phrase in verse, the phrase in verse 1 that says, But God remembered. I want to key in on those three words in the middle of this chapter tonight. But God remembered. Noah may have felt forgotten, but with the words God remembered are a much deeper, richer, and fuller idea that God, than, than the fact that, or the idea that God's memory had been jarred the way we might remember something. Like when we placed our car keys and can't remember where we put them, or the way we might remember that we left a child at home and we need to hurry and go home. Because I've heard of someone doing that. But God remembered means something much deeper than that, as we're going to see tonight. The expository idea and main point of the text is this. God will judge the wicked with severe and catastrophic judgment in order to start life over with a worshiping community. So let's jump in, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. But God. First two verses of our text. But God. These are my favorite two words in the Bible. But God. Ephesians chapter 2 describes the depraved, broken nature of sinful man. Man in his sin is miserable. The picture of the floodwaters in Genesis 7 and 8 are illustrative of the floodwaters of sin that every man is drowning in. 
May we not forget that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were walking dead men like the fictional zombie characters that are so grotesque and are the stuff of nightmares and blockbusters. We were blind and dead and broken and lame and infected and oozing with the grossness of infection of sin and selfish motivation that demands instant gratification that fuels and feeds our flesh. We were hell-bent on rebellion against God, content to live with pet addictions in the squalid filth of hard-hearted indulgence into the desires of the flesh. We were in bondage. We were without hope. We were without life. We were slaves to sin and darkness and perversion. We were as corpses somehow functioning and existing in this world, but without the breath of life that is eternal and the peace of God that is sustaining. Our hearts were dark and black and wicked, and we cared only for the very things that break the heart of God. We clung to the very things that bring a righteous wrath and indignation from the hand of God. We were victims, but we were the aggressors. But God, praise the Lord, how could we ever see the magnitude of the beauty and mercy of God toward us if we didn't consider the weight of sin we had been under? But God, two of the best words in Scripture. But God provides a contrast between the destruction of everyone on the one hand and the salvation of Noah and his family on the other hand. And it says that God remembered. This doesn't mean God had forgotten anything, by the way. Kenneth Matthew says the expression remembered does not mean the calling to mind of something. It's covenant language designating covenant fidelity. God is acting in accordance with his earlier promise to Noah in the book Memory and Tradition, Child says this, God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object. The essence of God remembering lies in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. To say that God remembered Noah is to say that God faithfully kept his promise to Noah by intervening to end the flood. So today, let's be encouraged to know that God remembers us. It's a powerful picture, but God remembered. God didn't forget anything. What, what, what these commentators are saying is that when God remembers, it's like God's moving in on the fulfillment of a promise that he's made. And it's a picture of our fidelity to God, our faithfulness to God, our single-minded worship of God, and his remembrance, recognition, embracing of that worship, him moving toward us. We'll see this throughout the Old Testament when God remembers his people. He remembers his promises. And then it uses some terminology here that's interesting. God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The word for wind, spirit, it's the language of Genesis 1 when the spirit of the Lord hovered over the water. It's kind of reminiscent of that. Verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. God is the one who's doing the work in these verses. You get to verse, uh, verses 2 and 3. God is the one doing the work. God is drawing back the water. God is stopping the rain. God is suppressing the waters from the deep. So it's a picture of divine providence. God is in charge of creation. God is over creation. God is never relinquishing his control. Verse 4, in, in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the, of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were, were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. I think that's a crow here. Um, for those of you that are from the south, that's a crow. 
a raven and a crow, I think, are the same thing. Um, it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove. And all the good old boys know what those are. The first Monday of every September, a glorious thing occurs. It's called the opening day of dove season. And we do a dove shoot, and it's a good time. Um, so we're familiar with this bird as well. <laughs> Shooting crows is fun. Shooting doves is funner. Okay, so, but the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to, uh, to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her, brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again sent forth a dove out of the ark. There's some, there's some literary um, significance to the, the raven and the dove where the raven is a disposable animal seen as unclean. The dove has a lot more, there's a lot more um, Old Testament symbolism. And so, but I don't, to, to drill into that, I don't know, I think that's something to be fun to study on your own. Um, but there's definitely significance to the fact he sends the raven out. We'll see later when, in just a few, uh, just a couple verses, a few verses down, a couple minutes from now, we'll see when Noah makes sacrifices. He does not sacrifice any animals that eat dead flesh. So he's going to do a sacrifice, but, he, but, but those animals that eat dead flesh, those birds that eat dead flesh, he considers unclean. So there's something with the dispensability of the raven and then, and then the significance of the dove. The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. So if you think back to Noah's even being named by his dad, a name that means this idea of renewal and, and, and then the dove with the olive branch has become an international symbol of peace. Isn't that interesting? And this, have you ever connected that? This is where that's from. It's from the story of the ark. The dove comes back with the olive branch. Um, verse 12, then he waited another seven days, sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. The new work that God does in verse 13 is a foreshadowing of the new creation spoken of in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. I want to read that. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, at the end of your Bible, this picture of a new creation. This is a foreshadowing. Revelation chapter 21 Verses 1 through 4, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So you've got Noah coming off of the ark now, or preparing to come, to come off of the ark, because God is preparing the creation for this new inhabitation, and this, this habitation will be not just that man can now live on the earth again, but man will now live in restored harmony and fellowship with God. It's a prepared creation, much like what we saw in Eden. Verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, verse 15, God spoke to Noah. It's the first mention of God speaking in a year. There's a good lesson and application here for us. Do you ever have those seasons in your life where you feel like God is silent? 
Sometimes God is in the silence and in the waiting, and we have the opportunity to learn the power of his presence. But think about this. We have the word of God, which is living and active. Oftentimes, we're looking for God to communicate in some unique way, some supernatural way, but we have the word of God. He's given us all that we'll ever need in this life to know more of him and to know about him and to be in touch with him. There's so much mystery when it comes to who God is. There's so much mystery that is revealed to us through the word of God. And the deeper we study the scriptures and the further we dive in, the more we will know God, the God of the gospel. The world, the more we'll understand the world, the more we'll understand ourselves. Even in a season when it seems that God may be silent, we can look into his word and he's always speaking to us through his word. You got speaks to Noah. Go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons, your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all flesh, birds and animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went, he went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So they leave the ark. It's crazy. It's been so long that they've been on this thing, and now they're leaving the ark. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So in verse 20, because of God's deliverance, Noah offers up sacrifices and offerings of worship to the Lord out of gratitude and thanksgiving which is the appropriate response of a person who has received the salvation of the Lord. Out of response to God's salvation, out of response to God's goodness, we offer sacrifice, thanksgiving, and worship. This sacrifice was an expression of thanksgiving and gratitude to the Lord on the part of Noah, but it's also an act of atonement. What is atonement? We go to Leviticus chapter 1, further reading this week. You begin to, to read through those first 10 chapters of Leviticus where God is instituting the sacrificial system. Atonement is when the substitute of one life is made to preserve that of another. When the sin of, of man is forgiven by God through the sacrificial death of an animal. That's atonement. So this is why we speak in gospel terminology of Jesus being the ultimate atonement. Jesus goes to the cross and dies in our place. What, what Noah is doing is not simply an act of worship. He's sacrificing these animals. You can, even in the Old Testament, you could worship God without sacrificing animals. You didn't have to kill an animal just to worship God. In fact, David even speaks in Psalm 51 and he says, hey, there's more to sacrifice than the blood of a bull on the altar. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. What's a contrite heart? A heart of humility, obedience, contrition, fear before the Lord. So the sacrifice of these animals, so paint the picture, they walk off the ark, Noah starts killing animals. And the, and the commentators will tell us that this was a lot of animals that he kills kills a bunch of animals because the, 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 the act of worship and, and, and the offering that he's going to give to the Lord is going to cost him a lot. 
Reminds me of that story when David's coming, you know, David and his men are coming back from getting the ark of the Lord and he wants to, he wants to sacrifice on this one guy's property and the guy's like, hey man, you can do it for free. I would be honored. And he's like, no, we're going to pay for this because we're not going to sacrifice anything to God that doesn't cost us something. I think maybe one of the biggest hurdles in the life of American Christians is we want salvation, but not if it's going to cost us something. Not if we might, we get tripped up on this idea that like the idea that, that we're saved by grace through faith and it's a free gift of God is a beautiful, beautiful idea. But man, we like to say this to students in student ministry, the gospel is free in terms of the salvation that's given to us, but then it costs us everything after that. And Noah's showing us what this looks like. The sacrifice was an expression of thanksgiving and gratitude, but it's also an act of atonement. Let me further on that from the ESV study Bible notes. It mentions this. Atonement is a normal aspect of burnt offerings and is supported by the mention of the pleasing aroma. The Hebrew term for pleasing conveys the idea of rest and tranquility. It is related to the name Noah and is probably used here in order to, the, to remind the reader of Noah's father's remarks in Genesis 5, 29. It also has the sense of soothing. The bird offering soothes anger, the anger of the Lord at human sin. So although human nature has not been changed by the flood, God's attitude has changed. The, the CSB study Bible adds this, which I think is also helpful. The sacrifice would have been massive since every kind of clean animal and bird, that is, one of every mammal that chewed the cud and possessed split hooves, as well as one representative of every kind of bird that did not eat dead flesh like crows and buzzards, was offered, it must have been an impressive sacrifice. No, man, he, he, he goes all out. Goes all out. It's a sacrifice of worship and it's a sacrifice of atonement. And it says that God smelled, this is the terminology that's used, the sacrifice. It means that God accepted the sacrifice. Ross says this, the terminology in these verses reflects Leviticus 1, which legislate the whole burnt offering and describe it as a sweet aroma offering. The whole burnt offering represented the worshiper's total surrender and dedication to the Lord, and the expression of the Lord smelling the sweet fragrance represented God's acceptance. So when you're reading the Bible and you see that God smelled the offering, the idea is that God accepted it. He accepted that and he, he was pleased with it. And it says, even though, look what God says, I will never again cause the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. It's like God is saying, even though man deserves it, I will extend divine mercy. Divine mercy for the wickedness that man possesses but God will yet extend divine mercy and then he says this in verse 22 while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night shall not cease in verse 22 we see the rhythm of life being reestablished the rhythm of life is being reestablished there's a funny saying um, if you don't like the weather here just wait 10 minutes and it'll change you heard that that's mountain weather. You know, the, the, the Southern Appalachians, and especially this valley right here, uh, a lot of years we lead the nation in rainfall for the first six or eight months of the year. Um, and it's miserable, and we all know it. Um, and it's hard to live with this sometimes, and it will spin you into deep depression and long 
winter darkness. Um, <laughs> we can all relate to this after the last couple of weeks, walking around t-shirts for a few days there. Um, in one 24-hour period, I saw guys wearing shorts and t-shirts who realized when they came to work that morning, they had made a mistake because by the end of the day, it was like 21 degrees, you know, like in a, not even a 24-hour cycle. It's just in a few minutes. Right now, we are in the season of the year that most of us dread. The first part of January is not so bad because we're coming off the excitement of the holidays and the new year. And uh, many of us have fitness goals and diet goals and reading goals and financial goals. I've set the financial goal to become a millionaire this year. <laughs> goals, man. You got to set goals, you know? Set goals. I don't, I'm not off to a solid nine day start, but I'll keep you posted as well as a commitment to build and grow as people. But let's pause for a minute and think about February. Let's, let's all pause and think about. There's a reason February is the shortest month. God in his kindness and mercy. Even though it's only 28 days, let's be honest, it feels twice as long as any other month. In fact, the 28 days of February were the longest four months of my year last year. In fact, they're the longest four months any of us will ever go through. By the end of February, I usually feel like the people of Narnia after the 100 years of winter. Oftentimes, these dark and wet and cold patterns continue right through March. But when the time comes and March and April begin to give way to warmer and sunnier days and spring is in the air, there's a gratitude and excitement that comes. Because the reality is we live in a season of seasons. God restored after the flood the circle and cycle of seasons in life. When we look around us, everything in creation speaks to the order of God's immaculate design. The lengthening of days, the shortening of days, the rain that falls, the sun that dries it out. God has established a pattern of life that overwhelms the evident and obvious pattern of death. Noah sings to that. So even in the cycle and cycle of seasons, the rotation of the sun and moon as the earth spins on its axis is consistent and a steady reminder of the Lord sustaining his creation of which we are a part. But not only are we a part of it, we are the sole and single image bearer of the creator in all of creation. Conclude with this. Noah was a witness to the outpouring of the wrath of God like no one else in history. But as Ross points out, that even as the wrath of God was poured out on the earth, there was also redemption and restoration. There's wrath, but there's redemption and restoration. Redemption simply means that value and purpose are assigned to something. And restoration means that that which was old is being made new. The flood was, in a sense, a reset in history that made the remnant aware of their impotence in light of God's power. The act of worship by Noah and his people in response to salvation is a picture of how we should respond to the saving grace of God in our own lives. Know what worship the Lord, yet yeah, worship the Lord and lived, Noah worshiped the Lord and lived in obedience having seen that only God is able to save because only God is just and able to justify in his judgment. Noah was given righteousness and salvation and in response he worshiped God in thanksgiving and sacrifice. Noah shows us that even though the heart is wicked and no one is worthy, we can acknowledge the wonder of the wisdom of God in redeeming and restoring life. We've been given eternal life 
in the ultimate act of redemption. And I love what Ross says here in closing on this section. When people express their faith and submission through sacrifice, God would smell the sweet aroma and say again and again and again that he was well pleased and that he would dwell with them and be their God. In this catastrophe, God gives us some measure by which we can know how much he will do to maintain holiness upon the earth. Everyone who strives after godliness may find encouragement, seeing in it the divine earnestness of God for good against evil. There's only one other event in history that so conspicuously shows that holiness among men is the object for which God will sacrifice everything else. There's no need now of any further demonstration of God's purpose in this world and his zeal for carrying it out. The flood, has not been for, the flood has been forgotten by almost all people under heaven, but its moral result is still with us. But he whose memory is haunted by a dying redeemer, by the thought of one whose love found its most appropriate and practical result in dying for us and is prevented from much sin and finds in that love the spring of eternal hope. In other words, it's good to remember the flood, but we get to remember the gospel. We get to see the ultimate divine act of wrath, but we get to see the eternal act of redemption and restoration in the work of Jesus at the cross. Flood should make us think of the cross. We're studying the scripture. We think of, of what God is doing at, at any point in our study of the word of God. If you're going to do a, a read the Bible through in a year program, then you're right now in the early stages of that, and you're going through Genesis, and you're going through Leviticus, and you're looking at the law, and you're going to get over there into some of those laws, and you're going to be like, what in the world is going on? What's this got to do with me? Why in the world can't I eat a baby goat if I boil that sucker in its mama's milk? What's that got to do with me? You ever read some of that stuff and you're like, uh, I got a problem. What, like they're talking about boils and lesions and pus and you're like, what is going on? Listen, everything that's given to us in scripture is doing something to reveal to us our need for a savior. And if we can get to the cross, what we find is that God's divine plan and providence is to bring wrath and justice, but to do so with redemption and restoration with mercy and grace, with loving kindness and long-suffering and patience. The cross is what puts everything into context for us, everything into the right focus for us. And Noah helps us understand that, and we can rejoice because of it. In other words, it's good to remember the flood, but we get to remember the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, pray that tonight as we have opened your word and studied it and considered it, God, I pray that you would help us to realize and remember that um, you made a promise that, that we'll see as we study this story that you would never again destroy the earth with water the way that you did at the flood. God, that, what, what happened right there is never going to happen again. But, but more importantly, what happened at the cross of Christ is never going to happen again. The center point in all of history is the cross of Christ where the wrath of God was poured out Sin was purged. A remnant would be saved. And redemption and restoration would lead to the advance of the gospel and the building of your church. Pray that we would understand that and we would be a community of worshipers who love you in spirit and in truth. And may we reflect that now as we sing to you in response to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.